Hello again, I'm Brandon Dawson, and this is The Distiller, a podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. This week's episode features Dr. Meredith Shockley-Smith. She is the Director of Equity, Inclusion, and Community Strategies for an organization called Cradle Cincinnati. They are working to lower infant mortality rates in Cincinnati and to ensure that every child sees their first birthday. Doing that by three strategies. Number one, preventing prematurity by increasing the time between pregnancies. Number two, uh, working to reduce tobacco and substance abuse in pregnant women. And number three, promoting safe sleep habits for babies. If you want to know more, you can find resources, facts, and information at cradlecincinnati.org. We spoke with Meredith at Urbana Cafe. Urbana is a beautiful coffee shop in Cincinnati's Pendleton District, a diverse neighborhood filled with artists and families, and these days, a lot of construction. And between the fire alarms being triggered by the crew working across the street, we talked about Meredith's transition from the academic world as a professor at Miami University of Ohio to the nonprofit professional world. It's a transition that for Meredith was a long time in coming, but it didn't happen that long ago. She's only been in her new role for seven weeks. So this gave us the perfect opportunity to get a glimpse into one person's transition from frustration to the meaningful work we so often talk about. And Meredith talks about that process. She's very honest about her frustrations in academia, about the paradox of recognizing that unhealthy organizations and institutions are very often populated with great people. Um, And we talked about the pressure of being an example for your kids, the difference between telling someone else they can be whatever they want to be and taking that leap for yourself. For many of us, it's a lot easier said than done. As we started off, uh, as we often do, by building a bit of context, and given that this was a big shift for Meredith, I asked her about how she came to Cradle Cincinnati, given her history as an academic. It was such an interesting transition. I had come from really working hard in, in academia and not really making a lot of progress and fascinating juxtaposition on being in the Black World, World Studies program and also teaching in the Women and Genders program. Mm-hmm. And really seeing the struggle of both black and women, black folks and women in that industry was just wild. So I sort of stepped away intentionally so that I could use the theory and put it into practice, which is what we always talk about in both of those Mm -hmm. um, subjects. Um, Have have those areas of study been your focus? I mean, obviously the focus in your graduate studies were those... Um, was that a progressive move in those areas through your academic career, or were those always areas of particular interest for you? <laughs> That's interesting. So no, it wasn't. My focus was really in education, mm-hmm. and I got into education to talk about why we were leaving people behind, uh, kind of in the face of no child left behind. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, and I really struggled through college. I struggled in high school. Education was not my thing at all. So I, I think I got in because. I wanted to study those people, and I was those people. And so it kind of was like, yeah, great, come in, do this thing. And so it ended up that most of who I studied were um, the African-American community, and that sort of became my focus within the education program. Okay. So that worked out well in the transition to Cradle because mm-hmm. it was like I had spent so much time immersed in the theory and so much time immersed in the community and gathering data and writing and kind of ended up in a public health conversation and then boom, I got to do the work, which is exciting. Do you come from a family of academics? No, not at all. My mom was in education, she was a principal. Okay. My dad was like um, 
blue-collar worker by Castle Bakery. And most of the people in my family are not, like my aunts and uncles are not college educated. So, so when you started, focus. when you first went to college, when you were doing your undergraduate work, did you think at that point, I'm going to get a PhD? I'm Under gonna be- no circumstances. <laughs> I was like, what? Why do people do this? It seems so absurd and like masochistic. <laughs> so why did you do it? As I'm a lunatic. No, I'm just kidding. I think it was because when I went to ask, um, I went to Public Allies, which is an AmeriCorps program. Awesome. And the placement that I got was at the University of Cincinnati. And I was doing work with first-generation college kids who were um, underrepresented or had an economic need. And getting them into master's programs and PhD programs was kind of part of my focus. Mm -hmm. And I... Because of that, I was networking with lots of different people. And one of the people that I was networking with said, tell me your story. And I was just explaining how it was tragic to go to school and how the education system was like a disaster. And he said, would you like to study that? And I was like, what does that mean? Like, Can you right. go to an institution and study how jacked up it is? Is that like a thing? And he's like, yeah. And I, so I was like, great. Let's do it. So this was in your undergraduate work or was this? That was in my graduate work. So it was after I graduated that I did Public Allies. And during Public Allies, I was working at at UC. And then I had that conversation and I applied that same year. For the master's program. Right, for the master's program at UC in education. So studying why school is such a challenge for most of the population. If you think about like 20% of people get a college degree. That means 80% of people don't. Right. And those rates are, are dropping, They've not They've been increasing. steady for quite a while, okay. meaning like prior to my going and last I checked, it was still there. Okay. And then you, so you end up with a master's in education. And it's sort of just a shoe in to get the PhD. How do you mean? Meaning like if you, you have a committee and you're already doing your research and if that's going well, it's mm-hmm. mostly like, this is my own opinion. I just want to say that. It's mostly <laughs> not speaking on behalf right, of right. Any the University of Cincinnati probably doesn't endorse this whole. Yeah. But anyway, the, your committee basically helps you get to the next step. Like, let's continue this research. Right. That's so I what's, said. Yes. What's the impetus for doing that, though? I mean, and both from their perspective and from yours. Why do they want you to continue to the PhD? And then, what was the value for you to continue to the PhD as opposed to stopping with the master's? I think the true answer for me is why was it good for me? It was like. What else am I going to do? Like, I, yeah. hadn't, I didn't have a job lined up. I was had children. And I was like, mm, it seems like it's going all right. Let's do it. And so I think the benefit of the university is that your research is going well. It's a contribution to the body of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And um, it's usually aligned to what your, your professors are doing on your committee. So it's also like, can you collect some data that can support what I'm doing? Right. It's kind of a, everybody works together yeah. to feed each other. So you're doing your PhD. You did all of this undergrad, master's, and PhD. You did all at UC. Right. So you're in a consistent program that entire time. I was in communication undergrad. Oh, okay. I was in communication undergrad. And then I did public allies, and then I did educational studies. Okay. And then I stayed there for my master's and my PhD. And was the focus of your specific PhD different at all than your master's? Holy. So I looked at, for my PhD, I looked at confrontations across lines of difference in education, Mm -hmm. which super helpful about what does it sound like to share about blackness to white folks what does it sound like to talk about queerness to straight folks whatever um so but for my masters I looked at 
framing violence, structural or otherwise, um, as a public health issue. Wow. So then it's, it was sort of taking that conversation about sh- framing violence as a public health issue and then talking about, like, how do I then make this conversation applicable to other things to have other folks hear it and want to engage? Yep. And then that's sort of where I left it. So when you finish that PhD, you have, and I'm putting words in your mouth, but what I'm picking up is there's a, there's a personal journey of discovery that's going on, while, which is what education should be, hopefully. Sure. Potentially a movement on your part in sort of how you're, how you're framing these issues for yourself. Yes. I think there was also a part of graduate school that is pushed by your committee and the people who are on your, in your program. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I feel sort of like there was some personal growth. And I think for me, the personal growth was mostly that I finished because I was like, at the end, it was very challenging. I'm yeah. like, this, these are not my people. This is not what I really want to do with my life. But then there was this background of don't quit, which right. is just like, beside being a strong black woman archetype of we don't quit, we can do everything. I was also like, I want to be, you know, proud of my work and you don't want to be ABD and all of the people in your ear mm-hmm. talking about finishing. So yes, there was growth and development, but I don't think that it was about in the way that people understand graduate work. Like there's this growth and contribution to the body of knowledge and whatever. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's a little... I guess- yeah, that makes sense. I guess what I mean is more um, that now the work that you're doing, the work that, uh, that all of that has informed you to be able to do, and even the work that you're doing at Miami, you're, you're publishing and you're writing and, and the advocacy work that you're doing is all as it should be informed by your education. And it kind of makes you... Yes, It makes absolutely. you who you are. It makes you... It, it helps form absolutely. the person you become. Yes. That's one of the things that I've said... I've said since I got this position at Cradle was all that I did during my master's and my PhD program set me up to be right. in this position and in a, in a unique place. And everybody doesn't get to immerse themselves in all of this literature and talk yeah. about what's going on in the world theoretically for years and then jump into it. Um, but I think the, the learning was not just formal. It was mm-hmm. also process about right. like how the institution is isolating yeah. and you know, and both of the, I think both yep. the formal and the informal training was so, great. So when you finish the PhD, now you have this terminal degree, you've gone through this 12 years? Mm, at least, probably um, more like 15. What do you think you were going to do? Well, I started teaching early. My, I was teaching in my master's program. Right, and most people do through the graduate program. So You're required to teach a certain number of hours. I was before I finished, I was co-directing my department at NKU. Okay. So right. I was sure that I would stay in the field. Okay. And then I, but I had been at NKU for all of my graduate work, and I was like, I think I'm ready for a change. And so I decided to go to Miami. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was quite a change. It was... It was uh, you, how so? Do you want to, do you want to tell us? Um, I was dealing with, at NKU, lots of folks who were non-traditional students. They had families. They were commuters. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them had experienced poverty. And so there was an easy entrance into the conversation we could make. And um, For people that don't know, NKU, Northern Kentucky University, we've, we've uh, 
we framed this up in past episodes because Michael Wilson went to NKU. NKU is a university that is, that is effectively within the Cincinnati metro area, even mm-hmm. though it's a Kentucky university. So we're talking about you're studying at the University of Cincinnati, you're teaching at Northern Kentucky University, and then Miami University of Ohio is up in Oxford, which is 40 minutes away. So all these are just giving people a sense Some of the context. geography of sort of where you've been. Sorry, I interrupted you. No worries. And then... Um, so that kind of understanding of NKU that I was starting with in Miami, which is a much wealthier institution, right. um, it's also kind of isolated, and so it's it was just quite different, the student population. And yeah. and it's not a commuter university. It's not an urban university. Sure. <laughs> I'm not even... Yeah, I'm going to leave it there. It was... I'll tell you that I... Well, let me, let me say what I think, and that way you don't have to necessarily say it. That the, that the student population at Miami uh, generally, by and large, occupies a much greater position of privilege than the student population at either NKU or UC. And, uh, and in people that I've spoken to in the past, getting them to engage in issues like these can be more challenging or getting them to understand because they don't have those personal experiences of poverty and other societal factors, it can be a more difficult place to teach factor uh, issues like these. Yes. And I did not have a community there either, so there was also the connection of living in Cincinnati all of my life and knowing folks, mm-hmm. and lots of people went to UC at NKU, and so, you know, yeah. even the faculty. So there was also just relationships that yeah. helped to be supportive in times when it was difficult to, to teach subject matter or whatever, get folks to engage. So skipping ahead a little bit, there comes a time, I'm trying to build like a little bit of a timeline here. There sure. comes a time where you decide that whatever you want to do with this, with this education that you have fought for cannot be accomplished at Miami, and then you start looking outside of academia. Yes, I actually just said it's time for me to put my boots on the ground, and I walked away in December, um, and I didn't have any prospects. Mm-hmm. And Talk about what that phrase means for you in that context, boots on the ground. Um, for me, the tower is not connected to the tower if, in theory, which is kind of the concept of we are not connected to the issues that we're talking about, like mm-hmm. hand-holding, um, actually touching like touch points and um, asking direct questions and being able to follow through with that. What does that mean to, to connect to you and stay connected and support? That's the boots-on-the-ground concept I'm talking All about. All theory and no application. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I really wanted to, and it was really interesting because theory doesn't always, you know, it doesn't smoothly apply as you want it to. Yeah. You're like, oh, I read this thing about whatever, and I'm going to do it. And people are like, no, I'm not interested. You're like, wait, but the theory is, you know, this or that. Yeah. Um, so I just really wanted to be working with people and to hear them and to help support. Yeah. The decision for you, because um, this is, we haven't necessarily said it in, in this episode, but our podcast is a podcast about work. It's about um, how people find meaningful work, especially about how people make those decisions and navigate the, the challenges of work. This is a big transition for you. This is a significant portion of your life. It's basically your entire adult life up to that point has been within academia. And then you say, I've learned all of this. Now I'm going to take it out and I'm going to apply it in the real world. Um, I can imagine that there are, you didn't have the network, you didn't have prospects, there's financial insecurity around that. Oh, there's yes. um, how, 
Talk a little bit about what that decision involved for you, both getting to the point where you were ready to step outside of this context that you were in, and then how you did it practically. Like, what did you, where did you look? How did, how did you navigate what, what was going to be next for you in that process? Big issue was that there's this real divide between um, academics and everybody else, mm-hmm. in particular in, in the field that I was working in. Because, like I mentioned earlier, it's real, theory does not become practice as smoothly as we like to think. And so theorists are like, if you just apply the theory that we've you know, researched and come up with, and, and practitioners are like, if you were only on the ground to know that that doesn't work. So when you go to do a job, a job interview coming from academia, everybody's question was, how are you going to apply this? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, what are you, you're a writer and you sit in your office and you, you know, tell people what to say or what to do. Yep. It's very different from engaging somebody who's, who's in the struggle and to listen and to then act. Mm-hmm. And I think for me personally, um, when I'm happiest, I'm supporting others. And that's what I did in my personal life. So mm-hmm. I, the cell was really who I am and what I do are not aligned. So mm-hmm. I want to do that. And that was the way that I sold it. But I, I also think that the money in the, at the university wasn't really that great. So it wasn't a huge risk. I mean, people are like, you're a professor. You must be so rich. Right. That's a fallacy. <laughs> Let's just be real. Yeah. Um, and so that risk was kind of, you know, I had a little savings and I was like, you know, I could literally serve for this content. And I was at the time bartending, mm-hmm. which supported my transition. Um, and also, there, when you are studying about race and about gender and about class and you are immersed in the oppression of it all of the time, it is hard to keep up the um, confidence to believe that you're going to go into this workforce and constantly keep, prove yourself. Mm-hmm. So... It was a little scary, and here I go again, having to be enough in a, in the space where that's just all really challenging. You've had to be enough in an academic setting all for years and years and years. Right. And you figured out how to do that, and now you have to change the entire setting. Sure. Proving you know blackness with a PhD was challenging. Yeah. And you, you would think that having studied that much and getting this degree, people would say, oh, I hear you. They might defer to your answer. Like, that makes sense. And instead, it was always, no, trust me, I read this, studied this, written about this, I know. And so now I'm back to, you know, explaining myself and mm-hmm. trying to be enough. Well, and in your defense in that process, some of the things that you have been involved in that we haven't talked about, you are involved in the community. You're a member of the Northside Community Council. Northside's a, a neighborhood here in Cincinnati, arguably the most diverse neighborhood in Cincinnati. Um, you host, I'm actually interested in these and we can talk more about them in your family dinners, um, that a lot of the things, you're not just operating in a theoretical world and you haven't done that. You have been doing, working in community, building relationships with people. But right. proving that out in a professional setting, I understand, is, is still challenging. Right, what is the value of that? And yeah. thankfully, Cradle was awesome and they understood the value of that, which was great. And it's literally what I'll be doing Hmm. for a living, which was kind of a miracle. But, um, so family dinner, I'm not on community council. I was supporting the um, 
entertainment and Fourth of July parade. I was on that okay. council, which is the best part of community council anyway. That's the best part of my side. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so for six years, we did family dinner, which was a potluck at our house on Wednesday nights. And the community there was unbelievable. And the sustainability of it was also fascinating. And that was really what fed my soul and how I could continue to do this other work that wasn't really feeding my soul. Mm -hmm. And so when people say like, you should work in your passion area, I was when I was going to family dinner, or, you know, when I was participating in family dinner, I was like, is this a thing? Like, can you be paid to go to potlucks or to have a potluck? <laughs> like, is if that's a thing, I'm into it. So it's, it's kind of wild that it's literally kind of come to fruition. Yeah. So it's like, how do you think about a job outside of the box we've all been told? Like, there are these places you get a job and they have bosses and you fill out an application and you do an interview and boom, versus like jobs you can make opportunity in lots of different ways. That sounds so cliche. But, well, like, do what you love. But I think there's something about that. I don't know how we can how we can make that a little more like tangible because mm -hmm. it sounds sort of esoteric right now. But I believe that that is a positive thing yeah. for folks. So that's interesting because that's actually one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about because academia is such a sheltered world. It's got its own challenges. It's got a lot of things and not, not in a particular institution, but everywhere. Academia is undervalued and over-corporatized and all of the problems that, that are easy to find. But when you move from that kind of a sheltered world into the nonprofit world, but kind of into the boots-on-the-ground world, has that changed for you and in a general societal sense how you think about the idea of work, like work with the capital W? And, and there's a lot of things that go into that. This is a big area but it's like work means a lot of things to people it means how they deal with financial insecurity it means how they deal with questions of value and personal worth in the world and the contribution they're making and I'm interested to know if this transition for you has changed how you how you think about those things personally and then how you in your work with the people that you work with obviously your your um uh Cradle Cincinnati is working with a particular set of issues, but you're also working with people who share a lot of these concerns. Has your, has your conception of what work means and the value of work changed in this process? A hundred percent feeling much more valuable as a person. Like my contribution is effective, much more like effective and useful. Um, I, I walk into work every day and I say, I am so grateful to be here. And I think that that's like Children's Hospital in general. Great people doing great work all of the time. It's just kind of an honor. But the Cradle team is absolutely amazing. Like, so for me, and this is not to say that, that the people in the tower, I've kind of like demonized that whole concept in this talk, aren't also doing great work, but it didn't feed my soul. It wasn't the way I wanted to contribute. Yeah. Um, it was just outside of my realm of period. <laughs> um, so I just feel like it's more of a fit for me. Yeah. And uh, meeting new moms and new families and also getting to meet you know, OBs and doctors, seeing how this all works and, and, and everybody's concern for 
the high infant mortality rate and the desire to attack that and create some change, it's, it's powerful. It's like getting up in the morning and feeling like whatever I do today that will actually create some change for black women as a community, for, you know, the infant mortality rate in general. Mm-hmm. So it's, I'd say it's passion. It's definitely... Do you feel like in speaking to those women um, in the job that you're in now, you have a greater ability to speak directly to their insecurities about work, um, to maybe advise them from a less theoretical and more, I'm trying to do this myself sure. sort of a position? I think that that will come, but in because I've only been there for a short period of time, mm-hmm. my, it'll take a little bit of time to create a relationship and trust. Yeah before you give advice because there we have an entire team of people cradle connections who are helping to support needs like that and and what i'm trying to do is create relationship and trust so that we can talk about what does future planning look like um how do we reduce stressors right how do we speak truth to power etc so mm-hmm. i think that will certainly be like my story and their stories will eventually connect around work, around everything, but I think right now it's mostly just relationship building. Is the work that you're doing right now making you hopeful about the state of the world? Yes. Both and. I mean, I sort of feel like... Because you're also closer to the real problems yes. that could have the opposite you're also, effect. There's also a lot of, like, wow, there are a lot of nonprofits, there are a lot of folks who have boots on the ground, mm-hmm. and, you know, why aren't these numbers shifting? You know, you you can hold that skepticism and fear and you're, and at the same time hold intention um, that I do believe it's, it's going to change and that there are, we are gaining more and more people who are working on it. We're gaining more people who believe, who are giving, who are supporting. Eventually there'll be a critical mass and there'll be a shift. And so it's, it's just a matter of staying the course, I think, yeah. holding the passion. Which... <laughs> You've talked about this a little bit, but it's a question that I like to ask uh, everybody who's on the show because you can hear what somebody does and you can hear their title and you can hear their mental process but it's another to be able to sort of conceptualize what it means in terms of how they spend their days what are you doing every day um, what does your typical day look like how much time do you spend in the office how much time do you spend out talking to people how much time do you spend in meetings I mean I just do like podcasts regularly <laughs> I'm <just> kidding <laughs> um, Seriously, I spend um, very little time in the office, but that's like my computer time, a couple days a week. And mostly I work in community. I try to go to places in the community and do my work so that I'm meeting people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of partition my day off that I'm meeting with um, other organizations, other leaders in community, and then just being in the community the other part of the day. Right. And those organizations can be people who are doing work similar to my own or just who are doing work in communities, period. Yep. Usually that's my morning and then my afternoon is kind of community-driven. And is that all self-directed? Is it? Yes, You're it is. coming up with your own list, you're setting your own time in terms of who you're speaking to and making your own priorities and how much time you have to spend with them? Yes, I have a lot of autonomy at my job, which I really value Cradle for saying, I, I, I hear you and I see you as a woman who has done this work and who has put in time and energy. Um, do what you feel is best and at the same time I I can go to all of them who have been in the field doing this work for a really long time and ask who do you think I should be talking to who do you think I should connect with and then those people who they've 
they've suggested and then I go and meet with them and I ask those folks who do you think that I should connect to and it's become this really strong tight web of folks who are doing great work mm-hmm. so I think it's you know self-directed in a way but also like thoughtfully yeah um, yeah just thoughtfully what does success in your current role mean to you like how do you know both in sort of like an immediate sense how do you know you're doing your job well and how will you know in the long term uh, more, more in like a personal sense of whatever, whatever your definition of success is. How is this pointing you in that direction? Wow, that is so for me. Like it's so general, but for me, success would look like communities of people who are sustainably connected and that who are supporting each other in ways that they would like to be supported. Um, and sustainably means long term for me. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to do a program here or there it's different when the people who participate in that program continue to to stay in a relationship and support each other mm-hmm. and then whatever goals they set they meet mm-hmm. and so that's success now now that I said that out loud and on a podcast um, I'm gonna be working hard it's on permanent. it permanent yeah <laughs> like um, yeah the internet Anybody is wants forever. to get on board with that feel free to call me yeah <laughs> um how has this process... You have two daughters? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And, and how old are they? 16 uh-huh. and 14. All right. 16 Good driving. luck. Yes. Yes. <laughs> There's a job. Yeah. That's, that's the real work right there. Yeah. Seriously. How has this process for you of sort of navigating your way out of academia, academia and into something that is much more direct application affected them and how does it change like how you how you relate to them it's so as their mom? great so they're so different my youngest is very much like really rigid in her education and my oldest is very like busy doing all the things the play the thing the, you know you're like how, Sage how did school go today she's like well so and so said such and such and blah blah blah, blah had on blah 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 and you know she's like and, I'll, and by the way I don't need to be picked up till 7 and I'm sitting in the parking lot picking her up you know like that and then the youngest is, is like, how was school today? She's like, well, you know, there was a math exam and there was da-da-da-da-da on it and tomorrow I need to be prepared for blah-blah-blah. It's very different ways of thinking. And so when I decided that I didn't want to do this job and they knew I didn't really enjoy my graduate degree and we did have conversations around the table about it, like, why are you doing it? And part of the answer to that is, do you want to eat? You know, yeah. like, legit. And so... Yep. And so it was really a load off to be able to take the risk when I said, I cannot do this work anymore, because they were also struggling to watch me be unhappy. So I would, I would say, to, if I were giving them advice, I would say, mm-hmm. you need to do what you love, and the money will come. Did you believe that when you said it back then? I, I didn't say it back then. I said it now. Okay, all right. And so back then I said, you just, I mean, work sucks. Right, Sorry, this is what you got to do. But then you got to eat, right? Yeah. And so it's like this, and for me, I always like, the doors open and I walk through it. And all, you know, like people who have these five-year plans and, you know, whatever, I'm like, what does that even mean, a five-year plan? <laughs> like, I just am like, what? You can go to graduate school. The person who hates undergrad, hate, like literally hated undergrad, is like, okay, doors open, let's go. Right. You know, and you know, you get a job, and it's like, do you want to be a professor at NKU? I'm like, 
no, I, again, I don't like school. But then I'm like, but the door's open, so let's go. You know, it's like, what? And then there was a point where I was like, okay, I need to take the reins on my life because I cannot just walk through every door. So, and I think there was also like a physical response to it. I was physically ill having yeah. to drive. Well, I mean, that drive out there was making me physically ill. And we had, you know, the girls were going through it. Ramirez transitioned to Wal- Walnut Hills, which is, I'm not going to talk about education. So anyway. We're, all we're talking about is education. <laughs> I mean, that in that sense. Like, I'm not going to talk no, about know. CPS. But I know, I know. It's, yeah, I think there's also a reality of, like, how much can you really do if you really don't like it? Yeah. That point, you said there was a point that you came to. Um, was that a progressive realization where you just sort of said, I can't take it anymore? Or was there a moment where you realized something's got to change? Um, it was progressive on, like, I can't take it. It was progressive. Like, I really am not enjoying this. I'm really not enjoying this. But it had been going on for so long, and I kept telling myself, again, I can do anything. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, you're strong, powerful, and da-da-da, you know. And my mother was saying the same thing. And, you know, there's also, like, this way of supporting somebody in misery. Mm-hmm. And I felt supported in that. But there was, like, a point where I was like, why am I, why? Why would you want to do something you are miserable about? Yeah. Miserable in. That, that was a really hard, I mean, it, it was hard to kind of flush that out. Like, is it because work is hard and it sucks and, like, I'm sure there'll be days, even in my job at Cradle, even though I haven't had one, yeah. where I'm like, I'm tired or I'm overwhelmed or it's not going well or whatever. And so it's like, am I, is it that this isn't what I should be doing? Is it that this isn't what I should be doing anymore? Or mm-hmm. is it that it's just tough? Yeah. So I think that if, you're, if one was dealing with that, the way that I wrote it out was what, what else could I be doing? What else would I want to do? I kind of like dreamed up ideas uh-huh. and thoughts. And I was like, let me just work on it. So I'm, I'm really interested in that because I would imagine that there are many people listening to this who, you know, hopefully people listening to this who are in their dream job and are doing stuff that is very fulfilling to them. But um, law of averages would suggest that there are probably just as many people listening to this who are miserable in what they're doing and maybe are listening to a podcast about work because they're trying to either figure out what's next or drum up the courage to take the steps. Are there any are there any specific behaviors, actions, lists, questions, conversations that you had that gave you the courage to first of all believe that you could do something that you didn't hate as much and then actually take action to go out and seek it? I think one of the things that I did was journal about it. I kept I started to journal. My journaling originally about work was trying to get rid of the negative thoughts and let it go so it was basically like writing the misery the misery the misery and then I started to shift to like what would it look what would it look like if I enjoyed work and so it was like okay I didn't enjoy x or y and so what if I went to work and I could do this or that like what if I could do the practice of it what if I could like not drive 45 minutes to work you know whatever started to write try and manifest positive concepts about it I also will say that my partner was like just walk away and that's also a really really big gift Mm -hmm. because financially I mean I'm talking smack about how much I made I was you know contributing significantly to the household so it's like if you were a single parent or you you know didn't have that financial reality I would 
I am not suggesting you quit your job is what I'm saying. <laughs> Unless you thought of that out a little more than like, well, she did it. I'm going to do it. I'm like, mm, not the best plan. Um, and then I got a secret agent, which I could tell you about, who seriously was like, we got this. And I was like, we do? Okay. And then we did. Am I allowed to talk about my secret agent? I don't even know what that means. Are you Th- serious? No. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you. Yeah. Terry Heist is a secret agent. Terry Heist, co-producer of this very podcast. Indeed. Okay. Has some secrets that apparently she's not sharing. Oh. And they are to do, I don't know how secret they are, so I'm only going to share a little about it, but like networked me into places I didn't even know existed. Mm -hmm. And like has a social life that's also like exciting and I don't know, powerful women doing powerful things. And then there was also this, like, can you edit this? Can you? I mean, it was like, it doesn't even matter what you need. She's like, gotcha. And then it's like this turnaround in like two hours. And I don't know. So I would say get yourself a secret agent if you're going to take that stuff and yeah. say, I'm quitting my job. But in all reality, like, first of all, Terry is magical. She's sitting right here. Literally magical. She's, she's, um, and she is wonderful. And the podcast would not exist without her. But if you can't have Terry, what you're describing is you had an advocate. Yes. You, you weren't carrying the weight of that alone. You, yes. you had somebody who, whether they could edit your stuff and whether they had that network or not, you weren't, um, you weren't bearing the weight of that just alone or even necessarily alone within your family. But you were sort of, right. it sounds to me like getting counsel, getting input, getting encouragement, getting practical help. That yes. was greater than the resources that you had to bring to bear in the, in the process. Yes, I agree with that. And also, just like my friendships were also big in that, because they were sounding boards of mm-hmm. like, am I reasonable right now or am I unreasonable? That was also really mm-hmm. great. And um, if, if you have people who are, you know, the naysayers are also good because they kind of check you when you're like, I'm out, I'm leaving. They're like, oh, wait, whoa, what about like this or what about that? And you're like, okay, that is a reasonable thought. And then you can handle it. You can think about, you know, making a well-rounded decision at the right time. I'm still going to say that if there's somebody who is literally focused on that option, mm-hmm. like, like a secret agent, I don't know if there are more realities there of like, yeah. you know, businesses or whatever. But there was, there was something really, truly important about somebody who I could easily just drop in and say, hey. I need some. I haven't written a resume like, at all ever because I like Vita is like here's all the things I wrote. Here's all the things I taught. Right. And the resume is like I don't care about any of that. Yeah. Tell me what you can actually. Yeah. Tell do. me what you can do for yeah. us. Yeah. yeah. So that was interesting. So do you tell your daughters? Um, has the conversation? And I don't know if you're having these conversations with them. They're 16 and 14. I don't know if they're thinking about what they're gonna do. But when when you apply this experience to them do you do you use the words you know do what you love and the money will follow or is it more complex than that as you're trying to shape what they think they're capable of it's really interesting so I was mentioning both of them on different spectrums of like ways of engaging education so the oldest who was staging is 16 can sing like a songbird Hmm. and people have told her and this sounds like I'm being the mom stage mom or whatever but people are like she has perfect pitch you know she should sing she should sing and She's like, singing is not a thing I want to do. Like, even though I love singing and I'm passionate about it, she's like, that isn't what people do. Like, people are engineers. People are, like, you know, doctors and whatever. So she's like, it's not I, a need job. To, I need to do this thing. And I'm right. like, 
you cannot, why would you want to be a doctor? You pass out literally at the sight of blood. <laughs> or like, you know, an engineer would be on a computer sitting down all day and you want to be outside or whatever. So it's just like, these are the kinds of conversations that I think should be also happening in education where it's like, what are you good at? What do you yeah. love? Instead of like, here are the respectable jobs you can and should do. And yeah. then you try to fit yourself into that. And I find that that's how you get to a place of misery where you're like, I'm doing what I should be doing. And should be is never really... I mean, let me not say never. It's rarely, I would imagine. Right. Also haven't researched that, but... Yeah. It's just like, these boxes cannot possibly contain all of us. So, I, I think we are having these kinds of conversations. Like, how do you think about passion differently? How do you think about work differently than what we're usually pushed into to thinking? Yeah. Which I'm working on in, my, in myself. I right. totally... I mean, like, I probably wouldn't finish my PhD if I followed my heart. Hmm. I would have walked away. I probably wouldn't have, you know, stayed in the university if I had followed my heart. Mm -hmm. But I also didn't know how to think about it differently at the time. Like, I was like, this is the door. We're walking through it. So I I would say take a pause and think about that. Yeah. Um, My son and I, I don't know if I've mentioned it on the show before or not, but my son and I talk about these kind of things. And he said to me a couple of years ago, in a moment of, of childhood brilliance, you know, everybody always says you can do whatever you want to do, but nobody's doing it. And that is brilliant. And yeah. And that ability to, I feel like for everybody at any age, there is a need to be able to visualize something actually taking place before you can, absolutely. you know, and yeah, there's a woo woo sense to that in terms of like bringing things to you, but there's also just the physical, you can't do what you can't imagine. Um, and so somebody has to help you imagine something. Um, you know, somebody has to help, if she, if she were ever to do it, somebody has to help your daughter imagine that, a, that a, a, an income can be made and a life can be supported by singing. Um, so reasonable. And then, yeah. I mean, somebody said to her, like, there's only one Beyonce. And I'm like, yeah, we're not trying to be Beyonce here. I mean, there are millions of jobs, millions probably a stretch, but lots of jobs around music. It doesn't yeah. have to be that you are a traveling star. Right. Um, yeah, so I, it's also new to think about what does it look like to do your passion. So that, that's a whole other conversation. Do you, does everybody have that choice? Do you think that's like... So back to my job at Cradle... That is one of the things that when we talk, when, so we have a weekly dinner. I'm really into weekly dinners with some moms. <laughs> now um, I understand how all your work gets done. Yeah, just come over to my house. We'll figure it out. It's not going to be a problem. Bring a dish. Um, so at these weekly dinners, we were talking about like, what do you want and what do you need and where do you see yourself going? And a lot of that is, I am not really sure because I'm currently thinking about whatever situation I'm in. Yeah, and so. One of the separations that is happening for me and and my in my role is that connections, cradle connections, two one one. If you need some support as a mom or as a pregnant woman, mm-hmm. um, they are doing that work, handling situations of need and supporting moms. I am supporting moms in a different way, which is about imagining what future looks like. It's yep. about imagining what community looks like and that support. So when we talked about like what it, who did I go to and who did I. Um, who was valuable in my transition, that's what I'm talking about, Hmm. that kind of community. Mm -hmm. 
where people are listening to you, who are giving you positive and negative feedback, who are also concerned about your needs. So what, what does it look like if I don't, if, can, can we make dinner every other week? You know, can you make dinner on Thursdays and I make dinner on Wednesdays and they make dinner on Tuesdays? Kind of lighten my load, whatever that is. So sometimes it's really practical. It's, sometimes it's really practical. Yeah. And sometimes it's um, dreaming, just dreaming together, storyboarding, whatever. So I think that's a good distinction to make between like what we're saying about need or want or dreaming. Yeah. I was just listening to another podcast, lest I indicate that there are other podcasts than this one. I was listening to an NPR podcast, um, and I'll, I'll figure out which one it was, and I'll put something on the website about it, because it was great, but it was talking about how the science behind how scarcity changes behavior, um, and um, the actual mental processes that when you are afraid of something, it changes your behavior and it limits, it limits your options. And, you know, everybody, I think, is, is generally sort of, like, aware of the idea of the hierarchy of needs. And, sure, you know, that if absolutely. your basic needs are not met, then you can't consider higher needs. But, but I don't know that we societally are aware of that it actually changes our decision-making processes. It changes the chemistry of the brain. And getting into those discussions with people. So, number one, recognizing the value of the work that you're doing, but also speaking to somebody who might be listening to this and saying, well, that's great for you to talk about being able to do meaningful work, but I'm trying to put food on the table, that, that it's unrealistic for that person to expect to make the leap until they have taken care of those needs and have created a safety net and that that is an acceptable and okay and necessary place to be. Absolutely. I, I wouldn't trade the work that I put in that I, I would say I was not, I wasn't happy probably during any of that work during graduate school. Um, I did enjoy students. I loved teaching and so I'm a relational community oriented person and I started to do that in my classroom which is what ended up in my PhD dissertation. But the struggle was real, but it was necessary. Yeah. It was necessary to, to eat and to and, and ultimately to get me where I am at Cradle because I'm sure that my PhD helped get me in the door and the work that I was doing with black women um, and the black community there helped get me in the door. So I would definitely say there's no judgment on not doing what you're passionate about. Yeah. It's just a gift if you can. So if you, there's like a process of during the struggle or during the hard work of thinking about what does it look like to do something else. Mm-hmm. So it's like holding an intention or, or working on those things at the same time, mm-hmm. which again helps to be in community because you're working and then you come and you can kind of lean into that space and think about life differently. Is there anything that um, when you were in that place, kind of in whatever was sort of the hardest phase of it that you wish somebody had said to you or that you wish you had, you had heard? Um, I think when I was there, most people who knew that I wasn't really happy said to me things like, you'll be fine, instead of things like, what do you need to be happy? I mm. wish I had started the conversation earlier about the fact that I don't have to be miserable and I don't have to complete something because society expects it or, or you have this like unreasonable belief that you need to do this or that. So I think it's... I mean, you'll be, you'll, you are okay and you, all, you, are, you can do this thing but that you don't have to, like... I don't know. I wish somebody would help to facilitate a don't continue to be miserable conversation a little earlier. Yeah. Before my wife was like, 
I think you should quit. <laughs> I'm like, that is the best idea you've ever had. Or it's all or nothing. <laughs> so looking, looking forward, um, and like we talked about, you've been in this position a fairly short period of time. Mm-hmm. But as you look at what this is, is um, pointing you toward, are you hoping... Uh, and I'm not talking about like after this position. Hopefully, this position lasts forever, forever and is fulfilling to you forever. But like, what does this make you think about your future, and what does this make you capable of hoping into for the future that you were not capable of before you uh, were where you are now? Um, it's so interesting. So part of what I wanted to, what I hope for the future out of this role is also that we can support people who were where I was, which is like, this isn't the life I'm trying to live, but that it, I can make it what I want it to be. So I'm hoping that we can empower women, and in particular black women, to facilitate the life they want, mm. and sustainably without it being you know, my job, but that it's like a changing of the narrative. A cultural change instead of just you needing to have this position in Correct. order to be able to do it. Right, right. Yep. So I think that's what I see as what I hope for the future. Right on. Sounds kind of woo-woo, but... No. It's the okay. stuff. It's, 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 it is. It's the real thing. It is. Yeah, and it's not gonna, it may be woo-woo, but it's not going to happen unless somebody says it and starts acting it. toward it and, and believing in it. I do truly believe in, that, in the work that Cradle's doing. Right on. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking about your process with us because I think that very often, like we talked about with teenagers, uh, very often the difference between being able to imagine yourself doing something and not even conceiving it of is just seeing somebody do it and having somebody tell you that it's a thing and that it's okay. And I think as adults, we often get trapped in this cycle of scarcity around our work opportunities and professional opportunities simply because we can't imagine doing anything except turning the the hamster wheel that we're already on. So you being open about all of your process, I think helps all of us uh, imagine what could be different about ours. Thank you. Thank you. Really, really appreciate you taking the time and hanging out with us for a bit. Anytime. This episode of the Distiller Podcast was recorded live at Urbana Cafe, 1206 Broadway in Cincinnati's Pendleton District. Thanks so much to Dr. Meredith Shockley-Smith for joining us on the show. You can learn more about her work with Cradle Cincinnati by visiting cradlecincinnati.org or by checking out this episode at thedistillerpodcast.com. You can also learn more about Urbana Cafe. Thanks to Daniel and to all the staff of Urbana for hosting us for the always amazing coffee and for the constant stream of dogs and their owners that wandered in while we spoke. you got to love a pet-friendly business, and uh, having a smiling pooch looking up at you while you're recording definitely sets the right mood. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson, with co-production, booking, and photography from Terry Heist. Our show is mixed and edited by Justin Golden. Our logo was designed by Scott Ryan, and our videos are by Mike Helm of Minute Moments Productions. You can find The Distiller on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. 
please subscribe to be notified when new episodes are released. And if you like what you hear on The Distiller, that helps us in numerous ways to get the word out. You can also download episodes, find links, and get more information, including photos of the guests and the locations. You can get in touch with us at thedistillerpodcast.com or by email, mail at thedistillerpodcast.com. Whether it's to suggest people you think should be on the show to talk about their search for meaningful work, somewhere interesting we should record the show, or maybe even something interesting we should drink while doing it, whether by email on the website or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, We would love to hear from you. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.